Okay, here we go. Back to DPP. Vayeshev. All right, so we read yesterday about how Yosef is loved slash favored, perhaps, by his father. The brothers are not happy about his, um, the way the Torah describes his childish behaviors. He's uh, um, beautifying himself. He's also sharing information about their behavior toward the, children, the sons of the maidservants to their father. Anyway, they don't like it. Um, Yosef gets a special coat. They don't like that. He gets special favor. They don't like that. Yosef has dreams. Joseph has two dreams about his being, you know, becoming the, the ruler, the leader over them. They don't like that. Well, the fateful day comes. Yaakov sends, Jacob sends Yosef, Joseph, to check on the brothers. And he can't find them. There's an angel that points him in the right direction. All right, next thing you know, he's walking into what it turns out to be a trap. I mean, not that it's a trap trap, but it becomes a trap where the brothers at this point, they wish to kill him. Shimon and Levi are the ones leading the charge. And uh, they wish to take the life of Yosef and straight up slaughter him. Reuven intervenes. We read at the end of yesterday's session. Reuven says, why kill him? What's the point of killing him? Why should his blood be in our hands? Let's throw him into a pit. Reuven's intention was to come back and rescue him, but as we'll see today, that plan did not come to fruition. So let's jump in. Reading number three, Genesis chapter 37, verse 23. Let's do this together. Now it came to pass. So all of this dialogue, by the way, happened before Yosef, before Joseph got there. They were discussing, should we kill him? Throw him to a pit? Okay. Now it came to pass when Joseph came to his brothers, he's walking into this conversation, that they stripped Joseph of a shirt. Which shirt? The fine woolen coat which was upon him. In other words, that special coat that he was given by his father that they were jealous of, part of their rage, their jealousy against him. Yeah, they took that off. Verse 24. And they took him and cast him into the pit. They threw him into the pit. Per Reuven's, per Reuben's advice, they threw him into a pit. The Torah says, what kind of pit? Now the pit was empty. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Rashi says, why does the Torah tell us specifically that there was no water in it? Because it wasn't really empty. There were, Ray, jump in. Scorpions and serpents. Snakes and scorpions and serpents. There were dangerous, dangerous um, creatures in that pit. So again, the Torah says, the pit was empty in the context that there was no water in it, but there were dangerous elements, elements that would otherwise take a human life. So they didn't throw him simply into a pit and, you know, like, all right, maybe he'll survive, maybe he won't, maybe he'll climb out or not. There were dangerous snakes, scorpions, vipers, etc. Okay, let's continue. I'll share with you a teaching of Hasidism. A Hasidic teaching, because it's the 19th of Kislev, and that's how we roll in general, especially today. So there's an explanation, Hasidic explanation that says that the bar, the pit, is a reference, is a euphemism for the mind, for the mind. Vabarek, when the pit is empty, right? When there's aim by mind, when there's no water in it, water is a euphemism for Torah. So when the mind, which is the pit, has no water in it, has no Torah, when our minds are not thinking about Torah, then there are snakes and scorpions in it. This is an idea that an insight that the Rebbe shares. In other words, it's not like we could have neutral thoughts. and like, oh, neutral thoughts. Typically, if we don't have healthy thoughts and positive thoughts, encouraging thoughts, 
automatically negative thoughts start creeping in, whether we're aware of them immediately or whether we only become aware of them later. It could be a minute later, a day later, a year later, or many years later. It could be many years later we're having anxiousness and we're having fears and whatever, and we're, we don't even know why this started. And the question, one of the questions that the Hasidic masters would ask of us is, how often are we consciously, on our own time, not when we're studying, but on our own time, thinking about Torah thoughts and Hasidus and these types of things? Are we thinking, are we filling our mind with life-giving water, or are we keeping it empty, devoid of meaning, wherein now snakes and scorpions find an opening to slowly make their way in, and once you notice them, at this point, I'm not going to say it's too late, I just did say that, but at this point, they're already there, and they've already built their own, what do like vipers have? A nest? Or is that a hornet? Viper den? Den. That's what it is. A den. They've already created their den. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that's what it's called. Does that make sense? An empty mind is a very dangerous place. Okay. We know this ourselves. Yeah. Wait, say it again. You get, it's, it didn't come across 100% clear. Say it again, Sarah. Okay, so are you going to hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Now. Yeah. Can you hear me? It's broken up. The audio is not great. The audio is not great. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, it's not coming through. Okay. Maybe All you right. can put it in the chat. A little oh yeah, longer. you could. Yeah, you could put throw it in the chat, and I can read it, or um, or maybe try soon. Maybe the connection is a little bit wonky. All right, but the point here is that that a mind is a very delicate place, and if if we're not being proactive about healthy influences, then automatically negative influences come in. It's kind of like I'm just trying to think of an example. It's kind of like a, a house. A building, you know, as long as you're maintaining it, it's maintained. The moment you stop maintaining it, it's not like it remains neutral, right? Suddenly, oh, this happens, that happens. That, you know what I mean? It like, or like a, 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 a yard. Yeah, it's not like, okay, I'll leave it. It'll be fine. No, weeds grow. It's like it just it, it happens. Then it happens by itself. Oh, good. Sarah's asking a great question. What happens if it's already be built? Right. If it, the den's already there. So I, 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 said, I said too late, but what I meant is it's too late to keep them out because they're already in. But it's, not, it's never too late to drive them out. The way to do it is to reverse, to reverse the trend. And, tip, and not, not, I'm not even going to say typically, pretty much all the time, 100% of the time, the way to do this is not to fight the negative thought. Because that's never going to happen. In other words, if you tell your, not you specifically, one tells, if a person tells themselves, you know, I have these negative, anxious, sad, you know, whatever it is, thoughts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to like force them out of my brain. Not going to happen. It's not, it's not going to happen. You can't fight with the shadows. You can't fight with the, with the vipers. It's not going to work. The way to do it is to slowly, slow, little by little, just turn on the faucet, i.e. the water of Torah. It's just putting... Torah in. And again, I, just to be very clear, it's, it's the Torah study that we do formally, but it's, I would say, even more importantly than that. I mean, I don't know, more importantly, but 
the big piece of this is, even in the times that we're not studying Torah, because, I mean, how much Torah do we study each day? A few hours a day. I mean, max, you know, one, two hours a day of Torah. There's 24 hours. Okay, we're sleeping, right? But uh, whatever. There's a lot of hours of the day that we're awake. So it means in those other hours, we might be driving somewhere, we might be eating, we might be shopping, we might be whatever it is, working. It's at those times to, to review in our minds the teachings of Torah, the teachings of Kabbalah, the teachings of Hasidus. It's about reviewing, the, it's about putting the light intentionally, putting the light in our minds and automatically, and we won't even notice it while it's happening. That's the power of it. If we're really focused on, on the positive teachings of Torah, you're not even going to notice where the vipers, where the snakes, where the scorpions have scurried. We're not going to even notice that. We'll notice only in retrospect, oh, I actually had a good day. Or that was actually a good, a good stretch of time that I had, you know, without battling, you know, whatever it is that, I'm, that, I'm, that I might otherwise be battling. We're not even going to notice it. It's going to be organic. This is where, and this is, I'll be, uh, you know, just to be, just to connect this with what we're going to be doing in January. This is what that course, uh, Meditations from Sinai, is all about. It's not, it's not your Eastern meditation class. That's not what it is. It's about Jewish spirituality and Jewish mystical thought and understanding a program for mindfully thinking about it, you know, and, and having the tools to think about it and constantly think about it and put these, these positive ideas into our mind intentionally as opposed to, you know, let's see what happens. Like, let's leave the mind empty and whatever happens, happens. That's a recipe for disaster. I, the biggest, I'm going to say in Yiddish or Hebrew, avlo, the biggest, maybe tragedy, the biggest, um, I don't know, tragedy is a little too strong, disappointment is too weak, whatever. The biggest, to me, one of the biggest problems that we have is that we don't teach Kids, we don't teach teenagers. We don't teach, when, when people need it, we don't teach this idea of you need to be in control of what you're thinking about. Otherwise, it's going to not be good. You can go for a while. Different people can go for, for, you know, for different amounts of time. Some people, it hits earlier. Some people, it hits later. But at some point, it catches up with us. If we're not putting intentionally, if we're not putting positive thoughts, right, positive Jewish thoughts in our mind, it's just, it's leaving the mind extremely vulnerable, and at some point, there's going to be, there's going to be a dent in there, it's, and it's not going to be pretty. Now, again, I said it's too late. What I meant was it's going to be too late to put up the walls to prevent them from entering. You know, there's two, there's two efforts. One effort is to keep the negativity at bay. The other effort is once it's in, how do I get rid of it? So that would be where the second piece comes in, and that's, again, not by fighting it. You're not going to fight it. You're going to just move the light in, move the water, in this case, the water in, and the other stuff automatically becomes displaced. It's kind of like water, right? You put water in or you put whatever the example is, right? Water in, the other stuff comes, becomes displaced. Okay, that's verse 24. And in the spirit of uh, Yutes Kislev, Yat Kislev, it's uh, very appropriate that we speak about this stuff. Um, and again, just to triple or quadruple down on this, it's not just when we study together formally. Or when you study together, in your, when you study in your own formally, it's in those between times that comprises, that consists of the most of our time. It's about reviewing and thinking. It's, I mean, the, the chassidim of old and of present as well. Whenever they walk in the street, they would be reviewing chassidic discourses in their mind, reviewing or saying, reciting psalms, you know, doing something positive. It's, uh, it's, very, it's a very important thing. Let's continue. I'm sorry. Let me just 
I can't finish with this. Um, it's not just for our spiritual health. It's for our physical health. That's the point. That's the big idea. It's not just, it's, you know, we'll get a, a big, you know, pie, a, a piece of the pie in the sky and, you know, reward when, you know, after 100. We're not talking about that at all. I mean, sure. Absolutely. Why not? But we're talking about right here, right now. It's not just bringing, you know, spirituality into our lives, into our souls. It's good for our, our, our own mental health and our emotional wellness. All right, enough. I'm saying enough to myself. All right, let's move on. 25. And they sat down. So what happens after they throw him, they rip off his, his shirt, his, 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 uh, his tunic, his wool garment. They throw him into a pit with scorpions and snakes and serpents and vipers. What do they do? Verse 25. And they sat down to eat a meal. Um, you know, sometimes when something negative happens or even something, you know, whatever, you can't eat because like you're sick to your stomach, even if it's not so dramatic, because you still don't have an appetite, you're nervous or you're anxious or something. They have no problem. They have no problem. They sat literally the first thing they do after they, they throw their brother into a pit, they sat down to eat a meal. That shows the level in which they had, they did not. Lose any sleep, bat any eye, bat an eye, eye, something like that, over this, over what they did. They sat down to eat a meal. The contrast, the contrast is big. He's in a pit, in a dangerous, fighting for his life, and they're sitting down for a, uh, some shawarma. They sat down to eat a meal, and they lifted their eyes and saw... And behold, I just picture like in the middle of this field, because they were shepherds, in the middle of this field, <laughs> they have a table set, right? There's a pit somewhere off in the distance. There's a table set, a farm table. There you go. Yeah. They lifted their eyes and saw, and behold, a caravan, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. And their camels were carrying spices, bombs, and lotus, going to take it down to Egypt. So the good news, as our sages point out, is at least this Ishmaelite caravan was carrying nice smelling things. Imagine if Yosef got sold to a caravan that was selling, um, I don't know, not so nice smelling things. At least he went uh, with good, good fragrance. Let's continue. Judah steps up, Judah steps in. So by the way, all four brothers are, are represented here. You ready? Ruvain was the one who said, don't kill him, throw him to a pit. Shimon and Levi wanted to kill him. Yehuda now says, Judah says, let's sell him. So we're going to read this inside in a moment. Ray, I see you on mute. Jump in. Um, yeah, I wanted to say that Hashem, although Hashem is usually very patient, He um, He uh, punished them. He said, you sold your brothers, um, and then you sat down to eat. And um, so Hashem uh, exerted punishment on them. Yeah. Does it say how the punishment was manifest or it doesn't mention that? Like what way were they punished or it just says that they were allotted punishment at that time? If not, not. Okay. All right. On some, okay. But on some level they were judged at that point and found to be guilty of uh, a number of things, including the idea of a callousness and insensitivity, to say the very least, uh, what they had just done and the fact that you're sitting down to, uh, to eat a nice meal. Okay, but Judah steps up now. So again, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, now Yehuda, Judah. Judah said to his brothers, what is the gain? Very pragmatic, right? What is the gain if we slay our brother and cover up his blood? In other words, 
okay, they, they weren't going to kill him. That, uh, that already had been averted. Reuven said, don't, don't, don't physically kill him. Okay. But they threw him into a pit, and he was going to die there. There was no way he was going to live, um, at least naturally. So Yehuda says, but, but what do we gain from this? What's the profit? My betza, what's the profit in this? That our brother is killed through our hands and we cover up his blood. What's the point? Come, let us sell him, because they saw this caravan. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but our hand shall not be upon him. In other words, not even into a pit where he's going to die. Let's sell him, and that's it. Let him live his life somewhere else. Let's just evict him from our lives. If we want to get rid of him, this seems to be the best way to do it with the least guilt possible. And the, most, and the most guilt. They'll get money for him at least. Yeah, Ray. They, they didn't know that Hashem had intervened to save his life. Got it. According to Ms. Rafi. Got it, got it, got it. So Yehuda says, but meanwhile, the, the fact that the Ishmaelite caravan came by at that moment was by DP, as we call it, divine providence, um, to provide an outlet or an option for that sale to, uh, to happen. All right, so Yehuda says, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but our hand shall not be upon him. For why? At the end of the day, he's our brother, our flesh. In other words, why should we kill him? Let's at least make some, some profit. He says there's really two arguments. Like, what is the gain if we slay him? In other words, what, what, what's the profit? And number two, let, let's, not, let's not even indirectly take his life. Let's just sell him. He's away. He'll be out of our hair, out of our lives. We won't have to see him again. Done. And his brothers hearkened. Yehuda, by the way, demonstrates here his natural leadership. Reuven was the oldest. Shimon and Levi were the hotheads. I say that, you know, lovingly, but whatever. They were, they were the, uh, the zealots of the group. And, you know, they had said, let's kill him. Reuven said, throw him into a bit. He wanted to save him, but he didn't. And Yehuda says, let's sell him. And they agreed. Then... Verse 28, Midianite men, merchants, passed by. Now hold on. We had Ishmaelites. Why Midianites? Different commentaries say different things. Some say that they sold them to the Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites. Who sold them to the Midianites? Who sold them whatever? And then eventually to Egypt. Or the Midianites sold them to the Ishmaelites. Some say, listen to this, that while the brothers were over dinner or lunch, while they were eating and schmoozing about what to do with him, and they saw the caravan, oh, let's, while that was happening, the Midianites, sorry, another group, this time Midianites came, saw this guy in a pit, pulled him out, and made a buck. Are you with me on this? There's some commentaries that say it wasn't the brothers that pulled him out of the pit. It was the Midianites. Again, verse 28. Then Midianite men, merchants, passed by, and they pulled and lifted Yosef from the pit. Who took Yosef out of the pit? Was it the brothers? Then who did, he sell, who did they sell him to? The Midianites, the Ishmaelites, both, one and then the other. Again, different commentaries. But there is one commentary, I think the Rashbam maybe, who says, this is what happened. The, the brothers agreed to sell him to the Ishmaelites. But in the meantime, lo and behold, the Midianites passed by. They found Joseph. They pulled him out, and they made a profit. They, made it, they, they did some human trafficking without any effort. They pulled this guy out. They sold him. They flipped Yosef for a profit without any, uh, without any investment whatsoever. And they sold Joseph 
to the Ishmaelites for how much? 20 silver pieces. And they, either the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, again, depending on which commentary you consult, they, someone, at some point, brought Joseph to Egypt. That is his destination, his final destination in this sale. Now, meanwhile, back at the pit, Reuben, later on that day, returned to the pit. Remember, he was going to rescue him. Yep. Yeah. But he was doing tshuva. In the meantime, he was worried about himself instead of his brother who was in immediate danger. Well, too late. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he rent his garments. He ripped his clothes. And he returned to his brothers. He found his brothers. They were somewhere. And he said, the boy is gone. And where will I go? It's a powerful expression. The boy is gone. Hayeled einenu. The child is, no, is, is not with us. Einenu. He's not here. He's not there. He's gone. Va'ani ana aniva. I don't know where to go. I'm distraught. I don't know what to do with myself. I had a plan. I don't know if he tells his brothers the exact plan, but he's distraught. He thought for sure this would be a slam dunk. He would, he would be, Joseph would be in the pit. He would come and rescue him. He's gone. Well, at this point, no one knows where Joseph is. They just sold him. And they're going to have a problem on their hands. You know what the problem is? When they go home now for dinner or to go to sleep, whatever it is, and Jacob says, hey, Where's your brother? They have nothing to answer. Unless they fabricate a story, which they do right now. And so they took, verse 31, they took Joseph's coat. Remember the one they stripped him of? And they slaughtered a kid, a kid goat, because the blood of a kid goat apparently looks similar to human blood. Can't say that from, from personal experience, but that's what our sages say. They slaughtered a kid and they dipped the coat in that blood. And at this point, they didn't bring the coat back to Jacob, their father, that would, be, that would look too suspicious. They sent the fine woolen coat with somebody else. They basically hired someone to pretend that they found the coat and bring it to Jacob. So they sent the fine woolen coat with somebody, and they, this other person, brought it to their father. Actually, no, now it sounds like it was their father. All right, I don't know. There's definitely a commentary that says that it wasn't them who brought it to their father, but somebody else brought it. But then... Oh, no, 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 no. They could be brought it to their father. In other words, they, that other third party, brought it to their, the brother's father. That still works. And they said, we have found this. Now recognize whether it is your son's coat or not. He recognized it to Jacob. He recognized the coat of many colors. And he said, said, it is my son's coat. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn up in the language of Jacob. In the Torah, Tarof, Taraf, Yosef. You ever hear the word treif? Treif? Treif. Treif means not kosher colloquially, but it really means an animal that was not slaughtered ritually, but was rather killed in the field. The, the literal meaning of the word treif is an animal, could be a kosher animal also, could be a cow, but it was killed, it was ripped apart, it was, you know, it was killed in the field. You can't eat it. It wasn't, it wasn't shechted. It wasn't slaughtered properly. So, Torah, Torah, Yosef. Yosef has surely been torn up. He sees the coat. He sees the blood. And Jacob rent his garments. This is what, what one does upon learning of the passing of a loved one. Joseph rent his garments. He ripped his clothes. And he put sackcloth on his loins. And he mourned his son for many days. In fact, 
he never stopped mourning until the moment that they were reunited because it says that God gives a bracha, God gives a blessing when it comes to loss. That even amidst the pain of loss, there is a blessing of, at some point, there is a forgetting that happens. Not in a callous way, but in a, posi- in a, in a healing way. There's, a, um, there's, a, there's a, a forgetting that happens, or not forgetting as much as it is a ability to, to grieve and then have some closure and then be able to move on. He was never able to move on. Because that blessing is only given to those who have actually lost a loved one. He didn't. Yosef, Joseph was still alive. And so his pain remained in its full impact for the duration, which gets back to, I think, Ray's question. Why didn't he tell his dad? But again, that's, uh, I don't know that we'll ever have a good enough answer for that really strong question. Let's continue verse 35. And all his sons and all his daughters, yes, there were more daughters, even though we only know of Dina, but there were other daughters, or at least daughters-in-law in this context, arose to console him. But he refused to be consoled. Jacob refused to be consoled. For he said, because I will descend on account of my son as a mourner to the grave. In other words, when I pass away, I will still be in a state of mourning. And his father wept for him. His father wept for him. Jacob wept for Joseph and did not stop mourning his loss. Verse 36. Oh, and the Midianites, getting back to to Joseph, the Midianites sold him to Egypt, to Potiphar, Pharaoh's chamberlain, chief of the slaughterers. So in a maybe ironic twist, Joseph, who we think has been slaughtered, his father thinks has been slaughtered, ends up working for the royal butcher of Egypt, Potiphar. Okay, let me check in because we're going to go to the next reading in a moment, but let me check in um, on the story. Make sense so far? Yeah? Okay. Excellent. Let's get back to the narrative. In the meantime, in the meantime, Judah has his own drama. Judah, as we just learned, is the one who gave the idea, the bright idea, to sell Joseph as a slave to the passing caravans, whichever one it was. But in the meantime, Judah has his own drama. Genesis chapter 38, verse 1, and this is a bit of an interruption. In the middle of the Joseph story, we have now a Judah story. Came about, now it came about at that time, so right around then, right after the sale of Joseph, that Judah was demoted by his brothers. What does it mean he was demoted? Well, it sounds like, and as Rashi points out, the brothers had a little bit of, um, huh, I'm not trying to... Uh, do too much tongue-in-cheek, but a little bit seller's remorse. You know, buyer's remorse? They had some seller's remorse. They felt bad for selling their brother as a slave and seeing their father tortured. So, and whose idea was it? Judah. They might have reasoned, had he been in the, had he, had he, had he remained in the pit, maybe he would have survived, and we could have rescued him, but we sold him. There's no way to track him. So they kind of blamed Judah for the idea of selling him. So Judah was demoted by his brothers. His esteem in their eyes fell. Judah, it was your bad idea that, that uh, we, can't, we, we can't find Joseph now. So he started to live on his own. He moved away from the, from the rest of the fam. He turned away. 
until he came to an Adulamite man. That's a place, a region. Adulamite. Adulami. From Adulam. He was an Adulamite man whose name was Chira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a merchant named Shua. And he took her and came to her. So they got married. So Judah marries this daughter of a merchant. The guy, the father's name, his father-in-law's name is Shua. He marries her. By the way, what's her name? We don't know. We don't know her name. At least it's not in the, sorry, I'm not, I can't say we don't know her name, but it's not in the Torah text. This is Judah's wife. Now, the same question could be asked that we asked before multiple times is, was she Jewish? The short answer is, of course. At the moment she married Judah, she became Jewish. That was it. Next. And she conceived and bore a son. So Judah's wife. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? what no, 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 no. I'm wrong over here. I'm, I'm, let, let me backtrack. Judah's wife, his name is Shua. Right? He, she, he saw the daughter of a merchant and the daughter's name was Shua. That was his wife. My apologies for, uh, for brain freezing. Judah's wife is Shua. She gives birth to a son and Judah named him Er. So, she, so Judah and Shua get married. Mazel tov. They, they have a child. Child's na- what, first son is named Er. She conceived again and bore a son and she named him Onan. That's son number two. Once again she bore a son and she named him Shelah. And Judah was in Chsiv when she gave birth to him. Good. Fine. So you have Judah and Shua, Yehuda and Shua. And they have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Family of five. Verse six. And Judah took a wife for Eris firstborn. So he was the matchmaker. He found his son, uh, a nice girl to marry. And what was her name? Tamar. Her name, she was named Tamar. This is the daughter-in-law. Again, Judah gets married. They have three sons. And now, this, years later, right? This is like, you know, time is being compressed here. But bottom line is, Er, Judah finds Er, his firstborn wife, and her name is Tamar. Okay, remember that name. Now, Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It says that he did not want his wife to become pregnant, so he would be with her, he was with her intimately, in a way that would not get her pregnant. Okay? And, uh, and this was not what God wanted. This was evil, considered to be evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. So Er passes away. Again, according to the commentaries, this evil was an unwillingness on his part. He didn't want to have a child, etc. And he would do whatever he did to, to avoid that. Fine. And then, so, so Er dies. So Judah said to Onan, who's the second son, it was Er, Onan, and Shelah. So Er passes away, and now there's a widow. His widow is Tamar. So Judah said to Onan, his second son, come to your brother's wife and perform the rite of the leveret and raise up progeny for your brother. In other words, marry your sister-in-law. We call this Yibum. Marry your sister-in-law. And uh, if you, when you have a child, please God, It'll be in the spirit of your brother who passed away. Maybe name him after your brother, etc. Now Onan knew that the progeny would not be his. 
And it came about when he came to his brother's wife that he wasted his semen on the ground in order not to give seed to his brother. Now what he did was evil in the eyes of the Lord and he put him to death also. And it's from verse 10 that our sages learned that that was Er's mistake also. Right? We know that Onan's, Onan's um, actions are clear. Right? Onan's actions are clear. He avoided. Um, he did not want uh, Tamar to get pregnant. So he did not, um, he did not impregnate her, for lack of a better term. And, uh, and that was it. He wasted his seed. And, um, and, and that was deemed to be, again, evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it says, God put him to death also. That word also indicates a connection between the two brothers. And thus, the sages learned that the first brother, Er, did the same thing. And that's why he was... So both brothers didn't want, that, want to, to, their wife, the, Tamar to get pregnant. And they were both taken. Their lives were taken. Well, now two sons up, two sons down, without being too callous here, but they were, they passed, both passed away. They were both married to Tamar. So Judah's already thinking like, all right, what is this? What is this? She's bad luck here, right? She marries my son, Er, he dies. She marries my son, Onan, he dies. I have one more son left, and she's now wait, still waiting in the wings to marry the third son. Judah says, no, not happening. Judah said, but he's not going to tell her that he thinks she's bad luck. So what does he say? So Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain as a widow in your father's house. Go home. He says, go home. Go to your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. In other words, he's not ready yet to marry you. So he kind of indicates that at some point the third son, Shelah, would also marry her. But he says, not now. Instead of saying, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. I think we should just move on and just go your own way. We'll go on our way. Let's just split the families apart. You know, just call it, you know, an end. He kind of, you know, teases it along. Yeah, Shayla, sure, one day when he's ready. In the meantime, go home. For he said, what was his reasoning? Why didn't he give, it, why didn't he give her Shayla right away? Because he said, lest he die too, like his brothers. He was afraid that Shayla's the third son's also going to die. So Tamar went and she remained in her father's house. Again, that's a euphemism. It might be literal, but it also means that she basically, she went home. Many days passed. How many days? I don't know. Many days passed. And Shua's daughter. Oh, it was Shua. Oh, you know what? I'm reversing my reverse. All right. Oh, well, it happens sometimes. It happens. Shua was the father-in-law. Shua's father-in-law. Okay, all right. Nope. We'll have to go back to the tape and, uh, and edit it or not edit it. Okay, it is what it is. Many days passed and Shua's daughter, who was Judah's wife, so Shua was not his wife. Shua's daughter, Judah's wife, died. So now Judah himself lost his wife. So again, Judah's mar Judah's married. Judah's married. Three kids, three sons. Two of them pass away. The wife Tamar is still around. She's home now. Judah's wife passes away. So right now, there's Judah, who's a widower, and Shela, who's never been married, and Tamar, who was married to two of the sons who passed away. And Judah was consoled. He was consoled over the passing of his wife, and he went up to watch over his sheep shears. He and Hira, his Adullah, my friend, to Timnah. Yeah, he basically was consoled by putting himself into the business of, um, 
managing the sheep shearing business. Whatever, he was a shepherd. He was managing the business. So that's it. That's, that's where he was. He found his consolation. He threw himself into his work. Not, not uncommon. Not uncommon. Okay? Verse 13. And it was told to Tamar saying, the rumor hits Tamar, who's waiting, you know, in his, saying, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timna to shear a sheep. Oh, by the way, it was also told to Tamar that there was no sign of movement from Shelah to marry her. And that now Yehuda, Judah, is uh, just, you know, going up to Timna to shear sheep, and that's his thing. So what does she do? She decides to take the initiative. So she took off her widow's garb, covered her head with a veil, and covered her face, and she sat down at the crossroads that were on the way to Timna. For she saw, as I just mentioned, that Shayla, the third son, had grown up, but as for her, she was not given to him for a wife. So she realized that the whole thing was a Baba Maisa, the whole thing was a scam. She realized that she was never, that, that there was never an intention or a good faith intention that she should marry Shayla. Because Shayla was already of age, and there was no sign of him marrying her. And now she's alone, she's a widow, twice. And, get this, to boot, she knows by divine prophecy. She has, she knows the secret that she is destined to bear children from this family, from Judah's family. So she says, if it's not going to be from Shela, it's going to be from Judah. Judah is now newly single. His wife passed away. So she's taking matter into her own hands. So she goes to the crossroads, standing at the corner. When Judah saw her, yeah, he thought she was a harlot because she covered her face. I guess that was the tradition. So he turned aside toward her to the road, and he said, get ready now, I will come to you. Let's be together, he says. I'm just going to soften this up a little bit. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. He had no clue who he was speaking to. The assumption here is that this was Somewhat newfound territory, I'm just going to assume for Yehuda, for Judah, because his wife had just passed away, etc. Again, I'm just going by what the implication here is in the verses. And um, he doesn't recognize her. And he says, let's be together. So she says to him, what will you give me that you should come to me? Like, what's, uh, what are you offering? I'm willing, but what are you offering? You, you set the price. Okay, 17, and he's, verse 17, and he said, I will send a kid from the herd. In other words, when I get back to my sheep, I'm going to send you an animal. Okay, fine, that's an agreeable uh, um, deal. So she said to him, fine, but only if you give me a pledge until you send it. In other words, how do I know that you're going to send me a kid from your herd? You're not walking with your animals now. When you go back to the animals, you're going to send one, you know, you're going to send a message, you're going to send a, a, a goat my way. How do I know? I need collateral. I need a guarantee. So he said, what is the pledge that I should give you? you now you name the pledge. Which, what, what do you want? And she said, give me your signet. That's like the signet ring, you know, the ring, the seal. Your cloak. Interesting, right? The cloak. Not the cloak of many colors, but your cloak and the staff that is in your hand. Give me three things. By the way, these three things are very unique. A signet is unique. 
A cloak, those, in those days, you didn't buy it off the rack. You didn't buy it off the shelf. Unique. And the staff in your hand, the walking stick, the specific staff, everyone carved their own. Very unique. So he gave them to her. He gave them to her. As the, as the pledge, as the collateral. And he came to her. They were together, intimately. And she conceived his likeness. She got pregnant. Then she arose and went away. Now, it's not like she was there until she realized she was pregnant. But again, that's, bottom line is she became pregnant from that union, from that, from, that, from that moment. And after they were finished, she went away. And she took off her veil, and she once again donned her widow's garb. She put back on her widow's clothing. Okay, well, Judah's a man of his word. So Judah sent the kid that he had promised her, the kid goat, by the hand of his Adulamite friend to take the pledge from the woman's hand. So he basically sent his buddy, the Adulamite, with an animal saying, give it to the woman that's at, the, at, that, at such and such crossroads. Give it to her and take back my, uh, my ring and my staff and my cloak. But the problem is he did not find her because she wasn't there. Judah didn't know. Judah thought that she was there. You know, that's, that's where she operated. She was there that one time to be with him, to get pregnant, to have a child, to fulfill the prophecy and the destiny that she would bear children from that family. Once that happened, once she was with him, she was gone. Could not find her. So he asked the people of the place, this Adulamite fellow, asked the people of the place saying, where is the harlot who was at the crossroads on the way? And they said, no, no Harlow was here. Like, there's no, one that's, there's no one that hangs out over here. He's like, where's the one that's usually? We don't know. So he returned to Judah, the Adulamite buddy, and he said, I have not found her. And, also, and the people of the place also said, no Harlow was here. No, no one has any idea what you're talking about. Are you sure you have the right location? Like, there's no one there. No one knows anyone who was there. So Judah said, all right, let her take them for herself lest we become a laughingstock. In other words, like if we keep on investigating, what's going to happen? You imagine wanted ad. Yeah, let's take out an ad in the, uh, in the press. Looking for, Jude, right, looking for the woman who was at the crossroads that we, that, who has my signet ring at, you know, sign Judah. Like really, he's like, let's just forget about it. Let her take them for herself, lest we become a laughingstock. Behold, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. Look, I tried. We tried. What are you going to do? So he was ready to say, you know, like, uh, that's it. He was not only ready. He said, okay, that's it. Done. Finished. And he forgot about the story entirely. Now it came about after nearly three months. Yeah, after three months. That's when someone who's pregnant begins to show, typically, that it was told to Judah saying, this is the rumor mill. The rumor, right? Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. They didn't even know, literally, that she played the harlot. Like, they didn't know what they were saying. They were saying, she acted unfaithfully because she should have been waiting for Shayla, your son, right? Even though it wasn't a real... You understand, like, the twist over here? He, Judah never intended to give Shayla, but she was supposed to be waiting for him, but now she's pregnant. So, so the rumor, everyone was saying, you know, Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is pregnant from harlotry. So Judah said, having no idea that it's him who was the father, 
Okay? Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Let her be burned? Capital punishment. Capital punishment. Why capital punishment? Look, either in those days, in some areas, this was punishable by capital, by, it was a capital crime. Or you could say that in Jewish law, there's that idea. Or you could say that in that him and her, whatever, she was also considered to, the idea of fire, let her be burned, fire is something about her being the daughter of a Kohen. Maybe her dad was a priest or something. I remember something along those lines. Be that as it may, Judah has a very strong reaction, a very strong indignant reaction to hearing that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. Ah, it's terrible. Let her be burned. Again, the, um, shall we call it, inconsistency in, in morality should not be lost on us. Are you with me? Like it was okay for him to be with a harlot, but I guess he wasn't married because his wife had passed away and he wasn't waiting in the wings for anybody. Anyway, but her, all right, be burned. Let's continue. She was taken out and she sent to her father. She sent the message. So yeah, so they were going to do it. They were going to kill her, execute her, all right? So, but she sent the message. She said, let me send the message to, uh, to, to Yehuda, to Judah, saying, from the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Just, she says to her handlers, if you don't mind, just take this signet ring, the cloak and the staff, take it to Judah and just tell him that from the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please recognize whose signet ring, cloak and staff are these. Listen to this. She doesn't call a press conference and say, Judah wants me killed. Judah was the one who got me pregnant. She doesn't say that. She sends a message with the items and she says, just tell him that this is the father of this is who I'm pregnant from. Do you perchance recognize these? Giving him the opportunity, the chance to either do the right thing or do the horribly wrong thing. So the message hits Judah, then Judah recognized them. And Judah says, yep. And he said, she is right. It is from me because I did not give her my son. I did not give her to my son, Shayla. By the way, she is right. It is from me. Could be understood two ways. Number one, she is right because it, the pregnancy, this unborn child is from me. I'm the father. Or she's right. She's more right from me or she's more right than me. Many. She's righteous, I'm not. You with me? There's two ways of understanding it. Not only she's right, it's from me, the pregnancy is from me, but she's more right than I am. She's been, she acted righteously, I acted deviously. I, I acted in a way that was dishonest. I told her Shayla was going to marry her, I didn't intend on it, she's right. Because I did not give her to my son, Shayla. But he no longer continued to be intimate with her. By the way, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is he, 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 never, he didn't stop being intimate with her. In other words, he married her and they lived happily ever after. Two different interpretations, both brought in Rashi, both from our sages. Either that was the only time they were together when he thought she was uh, you know, a harlot, or at that point, once he, she got pregnant, and he, they were then a thing. They were then a couple. Okay, two different interpretations. Be that as it may. 27. Let's continue the narrative. And it came about, sorry, and it came about at the time she was giving birth, right? So that behold, there were twins in her womb. And it came about when she gave birth that 
he, the infant, stretched out his hand. So the first one puts out his hand. So the midwife took and bound a crimson thread in his hand, saying this one came out first. That way we know who's the firstborn. If they're identical twins. So she put a band, a crimson thread, a red thread, right? A red string on his wrist and said, yeah, that's the firstborn. And it came about as he, as he was drawing back his hand. Behold, his brother emerged. So there's one that the hand came out. She ties it with the red thread. The, the, the hand goes back in. And the other child is actually born first. And she said, wow, with what strength have you strengthened yourself? So Judah named him Peretz. Peretz means jumping, strengthening, breaking boundaries. It's like when... Your brother's in the way. Boom. Clear out of the way. I know you had your hand out first. It doesn't matter. I'm, in, I'm out. That was Peretz, the firstborn. Afterwards, his brother emerged, the one upon whose hand was the crimson thread, and he, and he named him Zarach. Zarach means um, it's like uh, the sunrise. Zurichat Hashemesh. It's like when there's a dazzling display of colors with a sunrise. Or is it sunset? One second. Sunrise, sunset. Yeah. Okay, it means shining because of the shining appearance of the crimson. So they named the first one Peretz because he jumped out. And the second one they called him Zarach because of the crimson thread that was shining from around his wrist. All right, my friends, that takes us to the end of reading number four. Mano Manashevitz, the drama in this Torah portion is just tremendous. We took a break. So we finished the Joseph sales story. We read today about the brothers deciding to sell him and the havoc that that caused and the regret that that caused, etc. Then we segue to the story of Judah getting married, having three sons, two of them dying. The widow set to marry the third, but that's not happening. So she sets up to be with Judah himself. She gets pregnant, accused of being um, um, un, um, of, of infidelity, whatever it is, and, and um, she sends a message. He acknowledges it was him. And of course, they live or don't live, whatever, happily ever after. I like the version that they do live happily ever after. Why not? She gives birth to the twins. By the way, the twins, parrots, is the great, 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 great grandfather of Mashiach, of King David, sorry, who is the progenitor of Mashiach, the Messiah, the Davidic dynasty and the Messiah come from a very strange relationship. Are you with me? The relationship between Judah and Tamar, the side of a road, very, very strange. And according to Kabbalah, because today is the day of soul, Torah soul, according to Kabbalah, it's because when a big light Needs to, be, needs to emerge in this world. When a big light, big soul comes down into this world, it has to be smuggled in inside a uh, context, inside packaging, if you will, that does not reveal its contents. So the holiest of souls come about sometimes in the most, in the most um, curious of relationships. This was a very curious relationship. And it gave birth to uh, Peretz, Zarach, as we read about today. Okay, questions, comments before we close it out? Mark? I see, yeah, you got it.
I see an interesting Rashi on uh, Paris yeah. and uh, Zara. So which one got the crimson thread? Zara. Zara? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it says that uh, the word hand is written four times. And the note on that says uh, that's verses 28 to 30. Yod is written four times. It says corresponding, this is what Rashi says, corresponding to the four bands which Achan, who descended from him, violated. Interesting. So there are those who say uh, this corresponds to the four things that Achan took. A Babylonian cloak, two pieces of silver, uh, 200 uh, shakalim, uh, and a gold ingot. Anyway. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. so. interesting. This is this is talking about when the Jews were battling. I think it was Jericho when they conquered Jericho. Jericho, they were told to conquer the city, but not touch anything of the spoils. Don't uh, take anything true. of the spoils. So apparent. So it seems like he was the one who took the the spoils. He took four things, correspond his hand. He was grabbing things that he shouldn't have been grabbing. All right, interesting. So what's the moral of the story today? Let's, let's, get, let's talk to Achlis. So number one, number one, we talked about before the idea of a mind being a terrible thing to waste. You or, can't tell a book by its cover. That's also true, right? But hold on, that would, that, let's leave that for a second lesson. Lesson number one is about the pit of Joseph. It was empty, there was no water, and that automatically leads to snakes and scorpions. The same thing is true in our mind. When, we, when we're not proactively, literally proactively pumping in Torah thoughts, healthy thoughts, positive Jewish thoughts, the next thing you know, it's a free-for-all in there in our heads and negativity can brew. And we might not, not even notice that or not notice that only until much later. Not that it's too late, but when, it's, when, when already those negative thoughts and feelings have already taken hold and taken root, and then it becomes now an eviction, which is a little bit harder to do than, than prevention. Now it's about getting rid of as opposed to keeping at bay. Still possible, obviously, but the work has to be done. The work is, of course, putting the water back in, putting the Torah back in our minds, not just when we're studying, but in those in-between times. That's the key. That's the key. Um, we spoke about that. We spoke about good intentions. Reuven, again, good intentions, but didn't happen. Judah, his intentions did happen. Um, Yosef gets sold, and at that point, Judah descends from his brothers. Because whatever we do has an effect. I didn't mention this before, I mentioned this now. Right? Judah is the one that gave the idea for Joseph to be sold. His brothers look at him, don't look at him the same. And, uh, and he descends into shepherding and this interesting family drama stuff. The, our actions are not in a vacuum. Our actions make a difference. They affect us. They affect others. Sorry, they affect others and they affect us. You think you got away with something. No one knows. Dad doesn't know that we really sold him as a slave. We got away with it. Dad's upset. We feel bad, but otherwise we're good. Not good. It's, uh, it, it, it takes, everything has a price. Everything exacts a toll. Exacts a price, takes a toll, whatever. Final point was about, uh, as Mark said, right? Uh, can't judge a book by its cover or things are, the way I would phrase it is things are a little bit more than what they appear and this is true throughout the story of Tamar um, in various ways alright, hope this has been inspiring on the special day of the 19th of Kislev um, as far as scheduling goes tonight there are no classes feel free to uh, continue the Fabrengen 
for the, the special day of the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. Um, so that's tonight, tomorrow, DPP should be on as, as usual, maybe a mobile edition of DPP, but my plan is to do DPP, unless otherwise um, noted, we're on. Tomorrow is Wednesday, right? And Wednesday night we'll have Torah studies only remote. I'll be, please God, in Texas. So a virtual only pre-Thanksgiving, Arab Thanksgiving DP, um, session of Torah studies tomorrow night at 7.30. Also, I sent, we sent out, we released the first email um, for our Zoom, live Zoom event with Rabbi Label Wolf, the Australian mystic. Check it out. Check out the email, check it out on the website. Either way, join us and spread the word. It's going to be an incredible evening of Kabbalah and meditation in the new year as we, as we ring in January. Before that, I'm about to, we're just working on finalizing a few details. I'll, you know, DPP is where everything gets shared. This is, this is the, breaking, the breaking news space. We are going to be doing a beautiful event called... Bound to Inspire. It's all about the people of the book celebrating the books. It's, a, it's an evening of, there's going to be a reception, a, a, delicious, a beautiful reception, and a uh, multimedia presentation, as well as live books that you can check out and purchase if you wish on the special day dedicated to buying Jewish books, the fifth day of Tevet, which is December, I want to say it's December 9th. Hold on, let me check it out. Thursday, December 9th. Set, mark your calendars, it's coming up soon. The information hopefully will be released, please God, either later today or tomorrow. Take a, Watch out for that, it's going to be absolutely incredible. It's going to be a great, great evening. Fun, book signings. And all sorts of things. So okay. You said December nineteen. December nine. December nine. Yeah. Thursday, December ninth. Um, stay tuned for more details. Okay. That's it for right now. Have a wonderful day. Hanukkah. Hanukkah's coming up, right? Thanksgiving, yeah. Hanukkah's coming up next Sunday night is the first candle. Don't forget, Chabad in town. We're doing a bunch of mineral lightings. Virginia Highlands, Atlantic Station, Pond City Market. And Decatur, I think that might even be the order. Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. So stay tuned for that. Not stay tuned. Join us for those. Food, refreshments, lightings, all that good fun stuff. And um, otherwise, make sure to get your Hanukkah gear in gear. You know, you get your candles, get your oil, get your whatever, whatever you need. If you need, if you need anything, let me know. We got stuff. Um, otherwise, make sure you're well prepared, well stocked for the celebration. All right. Have a wonderful day. Great to see Thank everybody. You. Thank you. Uh, Donna, Ray, Sandrine, Sarah, Mark. Great to see you all. Good yamtiv. Take care. Good yamtiv. That's cool. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. See you.